Today's scripture reading is John chapter 12, verses 12 to 26. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look at how the whole world has gone after him. Jesus predicts his death. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless the kernel falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates the life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, First Baptist. What kind of things do you find yourself hoping for in life? Do you hope for things that are actually pretty unlikely, like maybe winning the lottery, unless some of you actually have, or getting that car in Tim Horton's roll up the rim? I've definitely thought about what I'd do if I won it. Or do you find yourself hoping more for things that other people seem to get in life that you just haven't experienced yet, things that seem more likely somehow? Maybe you hope for a promotion or to meet a spouse. Or do you hope for things that you know are coming, like maybe hoping for spring to come soon, even though it comes every year? For me, I think that my experiences of hope tend to fall in the last two categories. I definitely find myself hoping for things I've seen other people get, things that seem expected in a way. I remember graduating from university and hoping to find a good job. I knew that they were out there and that other people had found them, but I just hadn't experienced it myself. I also feel hope waiting for spring and summer to come every year, but especially this year, it seems. I know that the nice weather will make everything seem so much better. This last kind of hope might better be called faith, because even though it isn't beach weather yet, I have no doubt that summer will come this year, because it always does. Hebrews 11 verse 1 defines faith as being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. Today is Palm Sunday, and the passage we're going to focus on this morning is full of hope. Some of these hopes will be realized, and others will not. The hope here is expressed in two calls or two invitations in the text. 
The first is in verses 12 to 19. It's in the cry of the crowd as they welcome Jesus to Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna, expressing their hope for what his coming means. But there's also the call of Jesus in verses 20 to 26, and his call reflects the hope that he offers. So we find two calls in this story, two invitations, two paths to follow, two expressions of hope. So let's take a look at this passage together. Today's account really begins back in chapter 11, verse 55. These verses set the stage in a way for what's to come. So we read in verses 55 and 56. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? Now the backstory to this was that the Pharisees had been talking about trying to kill Jesus for a while now. And they seemed even more out to get him now, ever since Jesus raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. He called him right out of the tomb, bringing him back to life. And word about this was spreading, which was causing problems for Jesus. In verse 53, we see that Jesus even stopped his public ministry in Jerusalem because of this and went away with his disciples to the village of Ephraim near the wilderness. In verse 57, we read that the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. So it's not surprising that people wondered if he would even show his face in Jerusalem for the festival. It wasn't a safe place to be. And as we move to the beginning of chapter 12 now, the scene cuts from the crowd to where Jesus is actually found at this moment. He's reclining at a table with Lazarus, who had been dead and buried just a few days before. Along with others, Mary and Martha were in attendance as well. Six days before the Passover, and Jesus is at a dinner held in his honor. The meal famously ends with Mary pouring out expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and wiping them with her hair in preparation for his coming burial, whether Mary realized the significance of her actions or not. But even hidden in Bethany at the house of friends, Jesus could not escape notice. Word spread quickly that he was there. In verse nine, we see a large crowd coming to Bethany, both to see Jesus, but also Lazarus, who was now famous himself for coming back from the dead. And because of this, the Pharisees make plans to kill Lazarus too. Best to kill the evidence of the miracles along with the miracle worker. Because of him, people were going over to Jesus, as we see in verse 11, or believing in him, putting their faith in him. It's hard to say exactly what they believed at him at this point. We'll see later in 16 that even Jesus' disciples don't understand his full mission yet. But it's clear they believe that he was someone worth following and that God was somehow with him. Now, five days before the Passover, and this is where we find our first call in the text. Point one, the cry of the crowd. So we discover here that Jesus is indeed heading for Jerusalem. The rumors are true. And despite the threat on his life, he continues along the road with his disciples and a mass of followers. What was he thinking in going there? Would the crowd ensure his safety? While Jesus is still at a distance from Jerusalem, those in the city who have been wondering if he would even show up, hear about his coming, and forming yet another large crowd, they head out of the city to meet him. 
and it's a celebration. They're waving palm branches and yelling at the top of their voices. If Jesus was trying to be discreet, this wasn't helping. I'm sure you could hear them a mile away. Hosanna, they yell. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And they move down the road towards him. The Gospel of John is unique in the way that he describes the triumphal entry. Unlike the other Gospels, John tells us a lot more about how the people respond rather than what Jesus does. His focus is on what the crowd is doing. Jesus' action is noted just very simply and briefly in verse 14. We read, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Can you picture this scene? It wasn't that long ago that we could also gather in crowds. In my mind, I picture the crowd getting close to him and then lining the path to let him go between them. Maybe a concert comes to mind for you with people cheering as the artist comes on stage or a parade with children sitting on their parents' shoulders. I was living right downtown Toronto in 2002 when the Canadian men's hockey team beat the US in the Olympic gold medal game. I hadn't even watched the game myself. I was out grabbing food with a friend when all of a sudden the streets just erupted in this spontaneous celebration. People were honking their horns and cheering. Maybe it was a bit like that, with even the onlookers getting caught up in the excitement and joining in as well. Now, who did this crowd think they were welcoming? Why this reaction? What were they hoping for? The answer to these questions is found both in the Old Testament as well as in the more recent history of the Maccabean Revolt, which happened in the time between the Old and New Testaments. The cry, Hosanna, which means bring salvation now, is from Psalm 118. Originally, this call had been used for pilgrims entering the temple, but later it came to refer to the Messiah. They call out, blessed is the King of Israel. They were welcoming Jesus as a Messiah and as a King. But what kind of king were they hoping for? The way in which he's welcomed gives us a hint of this as well, especially the palm branches. This detail is actually only mentioned in John's gospel. Over a hundred years before this moment when Jesus enters Jerusalem, another leader had been welcomed into the city in much the same manner. It was December in the year 164 BC when Judas Maccabeus famously retook Jerusalem. At that time, a leader named Antiochus Epiphanes had been ruling the land of Palestine. He's known for an edict that he issued, which declared that the whole realm was to be one religion. And in doing so, he bans the Jewish faith, no Sabbath observance, no teaching of the law, etc. And he also erects an altar to Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem and sacrifices a pig there, an abomination to the Jews. But a group of zealots rise up, led by a man named Judas Maccabeus, and against the odds, they actually succeed in defeating him and take Jerusalem. When Judas enters the city that December, he's welcomed with waving palm branches, which come to represent the Jewish state at the time. So the crowd's response to Jesus here gives us a hint that they were expecting a leader like this, one who would drive out their oppressors and restore the land to Israel. Another interesting similarity between these stories is that one of Judas Maccabeus's first acts after he entered Jerusalem was to purify the temple. You remember that an altar to Zeus had been erected there. 
In the other three Gospels, the account of Jesus' entrance into the city is followed directly by him purifying the temple, where he drives out those who are buying and selling in that place. The temple needed to be cleansed, but the real issue wasn't Roman rule or a foreign god. It needed to be cleansed of injustice, of those who profited financially off worshippers coming to sacrifice. And it needed to be cleansed of that which prevented others from coming to God. It was probably the court of the Gentiles that Jesus had cleared, which was the only place that non-Jews could have come to worship. The nations were always meant to come to God. And so here we see the crowd welcoming him as Messiah and as King, and a great anticipation of what's gonna come next. Hosanna, they yell, blessed is the King of Israel. They hoped he was a leader who would take power and free them from the rule of Rome. And this wasn't a bad thing to hope for. It was a hope that came from their need. What do you find yourself hoping for these days? Can you think of anything that could happen in your life to make you react in the way that this crowd did? Now looking back at Jesus, I find myself wondering if he was tempted at all to give them what they wanted. A son of the most high God, the one who's called the God of angel armies, it would have been a pretty simple thing for him to take down the power of Rome and restore the land to Israel. He could bask in the glory received as king over Jerusalem, enjoying the favor of all the people. But if you remember, Jesus had already faced this temptation. First in the wilderness, when Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world. And again in John chapter six, when he withdrew by himself to a mountain, when the people tried to make him king by force. He would receive glory, but it was to happen in a much different way. And a lot more was at stake here than a simple shift of political power in the world. So although he doesn't correct the crowd, through his actions, he pushes back against this expectation, an expectation that he would come as a political figure, that he would rule in the way that they wanted him to, because he would actually offer so much more than this. He does this by choosing to come riding on a donkey and not on a horse as would be expected of a king. And this points back to the prophecies in Zechariah as we read here, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Jesus was coming as king and Messiah, but not in the way they were thinking. But maybe we can't be too hard on them. John goes on to write that even Jesus' disciples didn't fully understand at this time. We read in verse 16, at first his disciples did not understand all this, only after Jesus was glorified, that is, after he died and was resurrected, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Their expectation of what God was doing was limited by their perception of things and maybe by what they had experienced of God so far. Although they had seen the signs that Jesus performed, their eyes were not yet opened to see what this meant. It makes me wonder if sometimes we even miss the bigger thing, that's things that God is doing because we have other expectations of where he should be at work. So the call of the crowd was an expression of hope welcoming a Messiah and a King who would free them from their oppressors. And this brings us to our second point, two, the call of Christ. 
So we continue in verse 17. And here John again gives an explanation for all the hype and the size of the crowd. He points out that it was Lazarus's coming back to life that accounted for so many people wanting to come and see Jesus. Word had got out and continued to spread. The Pharisees comment to each other in verse 19, see this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone over to him, which is prophetic in a way. All the nations would come to Jesus. As if to illustrate this, in verses 20 to 22, some Greeks who were at the festival asked to see Jesus. And we read in verse 21 that they came to Philip with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. They don't go directly to Jesus himself, maybe uncertain if he would receive Gentiles, but they go to Philip, who also had a Greek name, who then goes to Andrew, and together they bring this request to Jesus. Jesus answers them with a parable. Verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is predicting his death. He would receive glory and honor, but not by ascending the throne in Jerusalem. It was through a death, one that would actually bring multiplication. By it, all nations would be able to come to God. He continues in verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So we see here that this same principle of life through death applies to those who will follow Jesus as well. The language here is quite strong, love and hate. And I think it's helpful to understand this as coming from a Hebrew expression to love less. And we see this elsewhere in the gospels where Jesus talks about the cost of being a disciple. In Matthew 10 verses 37 to 39, for example, Jesus says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. It's a call here to put first things first. It's a question of loyalty. For those who would follow Jesus, their primary allegiance must lay with him. It's to be willing to live counterculturally. To follow Jesus is to pattern our lives around the value of God's kingdom, to love God and to love our neighbors. To hate life doesn't mean to hide out at home or to live on a mountaintop. We're still to be involved in our world. Jesus himself was out in his community. He was part of people's lives. He ate and drank with sinners. But as Frederick Bruner writes in his commentary, it means the person who dies to the supremacy of his or her own self-preservation and advancement at all costs. We're to live in a way that we don't need to come first. Bruce Milne comments on this as well. He writes, the coming of the king means the usurping of our rebel kingdoms and the denial of our sinful independence. In, a, in its starkest terms, it means that we face death before we can know life. We are not to get caught up in the self-seeking priorities of the systems of our world, 
to live in such a way that we're just storing up things for ourselves. We're meant to use what we have to serve others. John himself will go on to expand on this in a letter that he writes in 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, come not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And we're in good company if we choose to live this way. This was the way that Jesus walked, and it's where we'll find him. And as we choose to follow him by giving our allegiance to Jesus, we gain more than we gave up in the first place, a life we can actually keep and honor from the Father. So the hope that Jesus offers is life. And in this parable, he reminds his followers not to be surprised by what's gonna happen next. How do you think the crowd will respond to this call? Likely not all who cheered his arrival would stay around for the events this coming week because getting caught up in the hype is not the same as being a disciple. Joining in the welcome is not evidence of a changed life. We see later in verse 42 that even some of those who believed did so half-heartedly. We read, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Other things took first priority. They had one foot in and one foot out. His disciples also, as we saw in verse 18, would only understand later on, they will need to wait and see what will happen next. It won't be after the events of the coming week that his disciples will put two and two together. And today, as well, as we begin Holy Week, we are also waiting, waiting to relive what life through death is all about. What hope does it actually give us? How does this larger hope speak to the smaller hopes of our daily lives? The call of Christ stands in stark contrast to the invitation of the crowd. The crowd invites him to exalt himself, to take power and glory, to live by the priorities of our world. But the mission and call of Jesus is to lay all this down because only through his death can God's kingdom take root and spread. Only through his death can we gain life. So we end today on a cliffhanger, in a way. We'll have to wait till next week to see what's gonna happen next. But we do learn something here about the nature of this hope that Jesus will offer. It's not a winning of the lottery kind of hope. It's not a self-seeking, take-it-by-force hope but it's more of the, I've seen this happen before hope, or the, this is how things work hope. It's a hope that allows us to present our lives open-handedly to God, knowing that we gain much more than we give. It's the kind of hope that prompts faith. So as we begin Holy Week, a time for us to reflect on the death and resurrection of Jesus, I invite you to ask God to show you more of who he really is. Ask him that your eyes might be opened. Are there ways that he's inviting you to see him differently? What is this hope that he offers and what does it mean for you? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we welcome you today knowing that you are truly Messiah and King 
You are the one who laid your life down for the whole world, that all nations may come to you. May you open our eyes this week to see more of who you are. Help us to live out the calling on each of our lives. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.